born in Bethlehem by his mother Mary and her betrothed husband Joseph. He actually backtracks, backs all the way up to tell the story first of Zechariah, an old priest, and his older wife, Elizabeth, and their miraculous birth of a child named John, who became John the Baptist. So I'm going to give you a short summary based upon these two books. I've kind of woven them together. I've kind of changed a few of my own words and added a sentence here or there. But to give credit where credit is due, uh, it's the Bible Recap, a one-year guide, and the Bible Panorama, enjoying the whole Bible with a chapter-by-chapter guide. So based upon that, this will bring you up to speed from where we were last week moving forward. Luke writes to a Greek man named Theophilus. He opens with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are characterized as righteous, advanced in years, and infertile. Zechariah is assigned to burn incense in the holy place of the temple, which usually happens once in a priest's life. He's greeted by the angel Gabriel, who says they will have a son named John. John's task will be to turn people to God, to mend human relationships, and to prepare them for the Messiah. Zechariah is troubled and frightened. But instead of taking God at his word, he asks for a sign. In response, Gabriel tells him that he will not be able to speak until his son is born. From that moment onward, he is literally speechless. And then lastly, nine months later, when the baby of Elizabeth and Zechariah is born, those coming to circumcise him want to call him by his father's name. Elizabeth insists that his name is John. Zechariah, writing on a tablet, confirms this is the case, after which his speech is returned to him by God. Zechariah immediately begins to praise God and to prophesy about his son's ministry. So that's where we were last week. We kind of looked at that big picture. And then and he begins to praise God and prophesy. It starts off like this in your Bibles, verses 67 and 68. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited... And redeemed his people. So we ended last week where we started talking about this word visit. What it means. What it requires. What it implies. What does it mean that God would visit anybody. Or in this case. In this context. Visit his people. And we looked at a lot of good examples. God visited uh, Abraham's wife Sarah at the appointed time. And she also bore a child in her old age. God visited his people uh, the Israelites, when after they'd been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years, and he raised up Moses and Aaron to bring them out of Egypt. But he visited his people. So regarding that word visit, we want to build on that this week. And I want to start with just kind of a general axiom, that is a general truth, a general reality or principle, and it kind of sets parameters for understanding what it means that God visits. Generally in the Bible... And the more familiar you are with the Bible, the more this is just completely undisputable. But when God visits people, it is mostly associated with trembling fear. In fact, a lot of times in the Old Testament, when somebody realized 
that they had been visited by the presence of God, or God uh, coming as the angel of the Lord, or a pre-incarnate Christ, when that happened, they often couldn't believe that they weren't struck dead. Because they generally had this idea, if God visits you, it doesn't go well for you. It ends poorly, and you would die. Even Moses, when he asked to see the glory of the Lord, the Lord told him, you can't see my my full glory. It would, it would kill you. It would destroy you. But I'll put you behind what's called, in the text, the cleft of a rock, and the hind part of my glory, the trail of my glory, you, that's all you could see, and that will be enough. Because the glory of the Lord, the presence of God, is associated with this trembling fear. I'm going to give you a couple examples of this. Uh, Just the nearby examples, how common this is. So in the same chapter we're in, go to verses 8 to 23, and let's rehearse the story of Gabriel visiting Zechariah the priest. Now, Gabriel isn't the Lord, but Gabriel tells him, I stand in the presence of God. And just by virtue of Gabriel saying, I stand in the presence of God, is enough for Zechariah to be afraid. So it reads like this. Verse 8, Now while he, Zechariah, was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled, which means visibly shaken. That's more than like, uh, sometimes we use the word troubled, like, "Eh, I find that troubling, and it's quickly put out of mind. But this word saying that he's troubled is a visibly shaken. It's It's a, you can physically see that the person is shaken by what just took place. So he's troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, we didn't really talk about this one little aspect last week, but when Gabriel says your prayer has been heard, my suspicion is they haven't been praying for a child at this point. I think that was something they prayed when they were not advanced in years. I think they were praying that when they first married, and when they were young adults, they prayed for a child. And I suspect they imagined, if their prayer was heard, uh, the answer was no. Gabriel says, now that they're older, oh, in fact, your prayer has been heard, and the Lord's going to grant your request, I wonder if Zechariah, if he had the choice, would have been able to say, well, that's not actually our prayer anymore. I'm not sure we're up for that. That's what the Lord intends to do to accomplish his purpose as he visits his people. So that's the first example of Gabriel and Zechariah being afraid. The second example is also in the same chapter. I won't read the whole thing. But in this instance, Gabriel, the same angel, appears to Mary and tells her some news. And she's fearful. In fact, I think it even says she's uh, greatly troubled in verse 29 greatly troubled, which is even stronger than Zechariah. So it's not just that Zechariah is um, a little bit weak of faith. Uh, Zechariah is a little bit more 
skeptical person. He's a little bit more jaded as life goes on. Mary, who is highly regarded, I think, on all counts, she's greatly troubled at this visit. Because generally, the idea is, if God visits, it's not a good thing. It doesn't go well. That's the status quo. So, why is fear generally associated with the Lord's visits? And the answer, I'm going to give you two reasons, though you may be able to come up with some on your own. The first reason, I'm going to simply entitle, duh. Because God is supernatural, because he is different than we are, we tend to respond to those types of situations with fear. Even amongst ourselves, amongst people, if there's a people group that is more that is different from you some distinguishable way, you tend to be more fearful of them. Maybe it's the color of their skin. Maybe it's where they live. Uh, maybe it's their upbringing. Maybe it's their job, their vocation. But when people are different than you, you tend to be not quite as comfortable as you are when you're around people who are very similar to you. How much more when you've got either an angel who stands in the presence of God, if God manifests himself in such a form that he visits somebody, it would be met with fear, with great trembling. The second reason is that generally there's an inescapable awareness of one's own sin and guilt. If God appears, or if even an angel of the Lord appears before an individual because they are not marred by sin, we immediately tend to be acquainted in a very uncomfortable way with our own sin and guilt. We recognize that we are in the presence of somebody who is wholly higher, better than we are. And we find that troubling as well. There's a really good example of this. It's still in Luke's Gospel, so just slip over to chapter 5. It's kind of a well-known story, if you're familiar with some of the stories of Jesus in the Gospels. It's kind of a fun story in its own right. Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon, Simon Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. It's very interesting. The fishermen, Simon, and several others have fished all night. Uh, We're going to find out they'd caught nothing. Uh, So after fishing all night, they're mending their nets or cleaning their nets up, packing it in. They're going to go home and sleep because they're working third shift. And Jesus borrows one of the boats to put out a little from shore so that he's in a better position to be able to talk to all the people at one taught. I don't know if they're kind of annoyed by this. Like, uh, Jesus, you've come off a great night's sleep, presumably. Uh, We're really tired. Maybe they're happy to do it. Maybe this is wonderful. We do our thing. He does his thing. But he has to be put on a little bit from shore. He sat down and taught the people. Verse 4. And when he finished speaking, he said to Simon... Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered him, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But 
at your word, I will let down the nets, or net, depending on your version. Uh, Simon says, in essence, it seems to intimate, he's saying, this isn't, this isn't going to go well because we fished all night. They're just not biting right now. And the kind of fish that are out there this time of year are the ones that, if they're not biting at night, you're not going to improve this situation by throwing out your net during the day. But he calls him master, which means like kind of like you're the boss. And so you're the master. You want us to throw out a, a net or nets? All right, we'll do it. But he doesn't expect anything good to happen. But he does it. He does comply. And when they had done this, in verse 6, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He doesn't say, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Master but, O Lord. Because he'd always imagine, like, I know fishing better than Jesus knows fishing. But he's the boss. And even if you know your job better than your boss does, if your boss says you've got to do something, you've got to do it. But at the end of the story, he recognizes he's not just my master. He knows fishing better than I know fishing. Because he's not the person I imagined him to be. There's more to this person, Jesus, than I could have imagined And so he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. That's a definition of somebody that understands something about the holiness of God. The response to God's holiness isn't, oh, I want to share my list of grievances, things in my life that I didn't appreciate, and I want him to give me an explanation. Because I've known people who have told me that. Like, when I get get to heaven, I'm going to let God, I've got my list, I've got my pains. I've got my hurts. In that day, the only response will be, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful woman. Oh, Lord. That's really the only, the only possible response in that situation. Job talked a big talk, and he was a righteous man. I don't want to denigrate him. He talked a big talk, but when he actually got his chance to air his grievances in God's presence, he found he had nothing to say. That's the right response to God visiting. But in Zechariah's case, he declares, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's announcing good news. He's announcing something wonderful. He's announcing this visit, which is tied to redemption. So this isn't a visit associated with fear. It's a visit associated with excitement and wonder and anticipation. That's the visit he's referring to. I told you last week, uh, I gave you a definition from the theological word book of the Old Testament. I want to share the definition. We'll build on it. The basic definition, and their definition, because these guys are like scholars way past me, it's paragraphs and paragraphs, but uh, I'm good at cliff notes. So the cliff notes are, the basic meaning is to exercise oversight over a subordinate, either in the form of inspecting or of taking action to cause a considerable change in the circumstances of the subordinate, either for the better or for the worse. So there are plenty of examples in the Old Testament, especially, of God visiting, and it's a change in circumstances. 
circumstances for the worse. There are also examples of God visiting, and it's a change in circumstances for the better. But when God visits, people don't stay the same. You aren't the same person you were after God visits. There's oh, It's a life-changing moment. Well, building on that, let's go to Psalm chapter 8. In, your Old Te- in the Old Testament, it's on uh, page 450, if you're using a pew Bible. Psalm 8 is a wonderful example that uses the word visit. It's a famous psalm. You've probably heard parts or all of this psalm as well. I'll read the entire thing and then I'll break it down into a few different parts. Psalm chapter 8 reads like this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you, the English Standard Version says, care for him. It's the word visit. It's the same word that's used in, well now it's not the same word used in Luke because that's Greek, but it's the same word used throughout the Old Testament where it's the word visit. So verse 4 ends, the son of man that you visit him. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's Psalm 8. It's a beautiful little psalm. If you want to break it down, it starts off with two bookends. It ends the same way it finishes. It's a psalm of praise to God. Now, there's a story of man in that psalm, but man is only there as a supporting cast. This is a story about God, God's character, his person, his power, his wisdom. It's a story about God. And in the middle of those two bookends is a poetic song of creation of Genesis chapter 1. Now, it's written from the perspective of the psalmist who is not living in the Garden of Eden. He's living with problems and life circumstances and difficulties. But living where he's at, he's reflecting on God who created everything and put man exactly where he intended man to be. So it's Genesis chapter 1 put to song in the middle of all that. Now there's certain things we learn about God in this psalm. Things we learn about God properly would be called theology. Number one, we learn the Lord God is maker of heaven and earth. All that exists, exists because God created. He created everything you see outside, all the, all the creatures, all the substances that we put them together and arrange them and build things. It all started with what God created from nothing. And God created people. All all that's created is made by God. The fact that he created everything and made everything automatically means I have a certain responsibility to him. Because it's not mine. I'm not mine. I belong to God. He created me. You belong to God. And you're accountable to him, and I'm accountable to him. Every one of us. 
So first of all, I learned that he's the maker of heaven and earth. Secondly, I learned he's transcendent over his creation. He created the earth and the heavens, but he's not a part of them. He's not contained inside them. It says in, uh, in verse uh, 1, at the end of verse 1, you've set your glory above the heavens. God's glory is surpasses, it's beyond everything that he's created. All of the universe, everything we could possibly ever hope to see, God is be above and beyond that. The, the biblical word, the word would be transcendent. He goes above it. He's bigger than that. He's transcendent over everything that he's created. Thirdly, we learn the Lord God uses what is weak to demonstrate his strength. In verse 2, it talks about out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes. If you've read the Bible, you've seen time and time again where God takes the weak and the unlikely and the lowly to accomplish his purposes and to win redemption. He doesn't pick the, the wisest and the noble and, and what everybody else thinks this would be the great choice, this is going to work because of that person's abilities. God chooses the weak and the small things to accomplish his purposes. He sends his only begotten son as a baby, born to poor parents, and he's laid in a feeding trough. Uh, Jesus actually quotes verse 2 about God ordaining things and accomplishing things through the mouths of babes and infants when he's going into Jerusalem and the Pharisees criticize on Palm Sunday. And Jesus says, have you never heard? And he quotes that psalm. That these little children that are praising me, crying Hosanna, God is accomplishing something that you're missing. He's ordained praise out of these little children. And they understand something you don't. And then he asks the question. The question. In light of what we know about God in theology. And the question is, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? He doesn't say, um, well, actually, let me illustrate it first. Let me give you some idea of how, how hard it should be to fathom that God visits us. Let's imagine, I've got to remember where I put things. Let's imagine this is the sun. So if I took the scale of the, however big the sun is, if I reduced it to the size of that little soccer ball, how big do you think the earth would have to be? The earth would be the earth would be this little ball bearing would be this size. I know you I mean if we had like TV cameras I could show you how tiny this is. Uh, Calvin come here. Come here. Come on. I want you to take the earth be careful don't drop it. All right? Hold on to that earth. All right? Now go back and I'll tell you when to stop. Go back. Kind of slow. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Going. Stop right about there. Okay? Now to scale, this is the sun. And to scale that earth, which he's got between his fingers, that would be the earth right there. The next nearest star to the sun, do you know where that would be? No, not according to ChatGPT. 
The next nearest star, if the earth is there, is in Orlando, Florida. That's what ChatGPT told me. 1,100 miles would be the next nearest star. If, I mean, I, mean, I don't, I don't want to say I, I would trust ChatGPT over you. But I'm kind of wondering. All right. You want to keep the earth? All right. You can give me the earth back if you want. That's the earth. All the people that have ever lived in all of human history are on this little ball bearing that's towards the back of the sanctuary, and this is the sun, and God created it all, and he's above it all. He's transcended over it all, and the psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Why would God do that? And the psalmist doesn't leave us hanging on that question. He answers the question. And, and the answer to the question is actually far more shocking than what our Bible renders it. The answer is so shocking, our Old Testament basically really doesn't do it justice. But the Holman Christian Standard Bible does a better job in translating it. So I'm going to show you the answer as it's rendered in the English version. It's an English Bible. It's called the Holman Christian Standard. The answer is in verse 5. You've made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, the English Standard Version says you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. The word is Elohim. It's the word God in the Bible. It's used over 2,600 times, more than... 2,600 times, 90% of the time, the word is translated God with a capital G. Why do you visit us? You've made man a little less than God. Is that true? He could have said, why do you visit us? Well, we're a little more important than the cattle, creatures of the earth, the birds of the sky, the fish, all those things we have dominion over. He could have said that. He didn't say, well, you visit us or you care about us because we're, we're more important than everything else out in creation. But instead he says, you care about us because we were made a little lower than God. Now, we're not God by any sense of the imagination. The gap is infinite. But out of everything God ever created, he created Adam and Eve in his own image. And we were created to exercise dominion over creation, which is all, all over in that psalm. It's all over in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We're to have dominion. We're to be like God on creation, in his creation, on this little planet called the earth. And because of that, because of the charge we were given, the role we were given, the way that we were created from the beginning, God cares. But in Genesis chapter 3, you're going to see that Adam and Eve shattered that image. They broke the image. And so the rest of the Bible, after Genesis, actually starting in Genesis chapter 3, the rest of the Bible starts telling the story how God is promising a visit and he's going to fix it all. It's going to be a reclamation of his people. He's going to redeem all that was lost and marred by, by sin and that has spoiled creation as beautiful as it still is. I see pictures people post. I post my own pictures about the beauty of creation. Sunsets, sunrises, mountains, valleys, trees. You know, unique, unique people in unique places. 
It's all wonderful. It's beautiful. But it's spoiled by sin. The best thing you've ever seen in your life is still spoiled by sin. And God has promised a visit where it all gets made right. And that's what the rest of the Bible is about. So back in uh, Luke, when Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. It's the same thing that Luke talks about in chapter 7 where it reads, Fear sees Jesus just raised somebody from the dead. A child, I think it was in that situation. Fear sees them all and they glorify God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And even there, even though he just did a wonderful thing to somebody who previously was dead and their people mourning, even though they're certainly rejoicing that somebody who is dead is alive, it still says fear sees them all. And they glorified God, but they said God has visited us. There's no denying the fact that God has visited us. But there's, I think, mixed in with that great fear, this awareness that we don't deserve such a visit. We're in bad shape. We're sinners. We're guilty. If God were to confront us and list, list out our own sins and private thoughts and motivations and evil, all the ways we've compromised was right, it would be devastating and we would be obliterated. So there's this tension where God can do these wonderful things, but why would he give in the likes of us? But he visits us, and Zechariah is rejoicing over it, but it has to do with this redemption. In Luke chapter 19... It's Palm Sunday. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. That's uh, worth looking at, actually. You should read the whole verses. So you're already in Luke's Gospel. If you went back there, go to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. This is uh, Luke's Gospel's account of Jesus. Right, well, he, he just... It's in conjunction with Palm Sunday writing in Jerusalem. So verse 41 says, And when he, speaking of Jesus, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The time of your visitation is what he speaks of there. A time when God was bringing, demonstrating mercy to you and kindness to you and the gospel to you. What is true to you? And by and large, the nation of Israel wasn't interested. And in a few days, they'll crucify him on a cross. They didn't know the time of their visitation. Now, from that little story, you can, you can pick out different things. You can, you can pick out that Christ has great compassion over those who are lost. That those who are still bound in their sin. It also makes very clear that God visits different ones at different times with a demonstration of mercy that is not ordinary, it's extraordinary. Jerusalem was one of those places. Jerusalem was a place where Jesus had gone for many occasions and he taught many of the people and he worked different miracles there as well. But in spite of all that, they didn't know the time of their visitation. They downplayed who Jesus was or is or they perverted it, or they denied it. 
They weren't interested. So we learned something about Jesus' compassion and mercy. We learned something about the hard-heartedness of sin, even when God demonstrates mercy. But we also learned something about judgment, because Jesus promises judgment is coming. When mercy isn't received, all you have left is judgment. And there's coming that day where they're going to tear down the walls of Jerusalem, and it will all be destroyed. Well, I can take that and I can apply it to the Jesus born in Bethlehem in a manger laid in a feeding trough. When he came, some people, all we can do, for some people all we do is sing the songs. Whether they're accurate to scripture or whether they're not, we can enjoy the songs. But if we sing the songs without recognizing who it is that's visiting us in that manger, who he was from eternity past and what he became when he was laid in a manger if we don't understand that we don't understand the real visit secondly we can look at the cross and say it's a nice ornament to wear around your neck it's something you put in a church different places Uh, Jesus died as what is a wonderful example of self-sacrifice or did Jesus die to take away sin that all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you have to be honest about your sin? You have to be honest about the way you've lived your life. You've got to cry out to Christ to take away your sin and give you a new life. If you don't recognize something of the significance of what it meant that the eternal Son of God died on a cross, you missed the reason for the visit. And it may be a story, a story you've grown up with and known for a long time, but there's purpose in the visit. It's not just meant to be a story. And then you can say the same thing about the resurrection. If you don't understand, he not only died to take away sin, but he rose from the grave to give us newness of life, then you really don't understand the visit. Jesus told the people as he rode in Jerusalem, you didn't understand the day of your visitation. Everyone here has been visited with the truth of the gospel. But unless it resonates in your heart and life, unless you've confessed Christ as your Lord and your Savior, and he becomes the pearl of great price, you miss the day of visitation. You missed what it was really all about. In your hymnal, there's a wonderful little song. It starts off with, Oh, hearken ye. If you've heard this, what should you do with this? Oh, hearken ye who hear good news. In your hymnal, it's number... I lost my orders... It's number 255, 255. So the odds are good that we get to play it. I wasn't sure. 255, let's everybody stand. Darwin promised he would lead us in this because it's a little less known.